Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. In this episode, we'll be exploring well-being and leadership and how to intentionally design your workplace for improved mental health and improved performance. I am delighted to welcome Andy Holmes, coach, speaker, and former head of global well-being, leadership, and capability at Reckitt. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you. We've finally found a time to do it. So. <laughs> Andy, you've been a professional sportsman, ice hockey player, and you have over 20 years of corporate experience in leadership, training, capacity building. And I know that you have a passion for people and changing the conversation around performance and, and mental health, which is a quest we both share. And I think it's a quest that all organizations need to look at today, you know, taking this strategic approach to human capacity, if you like, and rethinking and redefining both personal but also organizational approaches to well-being, but not only leadership and also performance. I know that you have basically something called C for Human, which is built on your passion for human capital. How did you get this passion for human capital and how did it develop into what is now the C for Human strategy? Well, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. So C for Human, as you said, comes from creating the capacity for human. And, and where it came from, I mean, my my background in sport and I've, I've got a degree in, in physiology as well. So I've always been quite, you know, interested in how do we build our capacity, not just to perform, but to sustain our performance. And what are the things that influence that, whether it's be, you know, environmental factors, whether it be interpersonal factors or whether it be psychological. In my work through corporate, you know, as you said, I've headed up leadership capability and now well-being. I was responsible at the record for running our high performance programs. So our, our future potentials, high potentials, future sales, marketing, finance directors, that kind of thing. And one of the things that struck me was that when you take someone who is exceptionally gifted, exceptionally good, and you change the environment around them, they can still fail. Mm. And when you actually start to look into that, quite often it was their personal interactions, their behaviors, their decision making that led to their failure. Mm. But that's not ultimately where the failure comes from. The failure comes from not having the underlying well-being and resourced capacity to behave consistently and make predictable decisions. So in doing that, what I started to look at was what are the environmental factors? What are the you know the scenarios around whether it be sleep or nutrition or relaxing and recuperation? How do they influence someone's ability to make decisions, to act without bias, but then mm. also to, to have the capacity to perform and to behave in a consistent way? So that's really where capacity for human came from. And then as that evolved, it was about how do we actually start to dial this up so that it becomes inexcusable when it comes to the corporate p and And mm. that, for me, is where C4 Human really starts to bite. It's how do we get claws and teeth into well-being so that it holds an equal seat at the table as any other commercial metric that we're used to at the moment? Yeah, and I think, you know, how can we actually change that perspective so that it's seen as a part of high potential performance because today yeah. it's seen as a sign of weakness often in the cultures that you know leaders work in where you have to be on 24 7 and it's all about how many times you can work across in a week and how, how little sleep you need as opposed to how much restorative sleep you need yeah and I think that's really interesting what would be your non-negotiable fundamentals therefore for leaders looking to intentionally design for well-being in the workplace given that the culture often doesn't support it but I, th I think for me, when you look at the non-negotiables, I, I don't think we start with well-being. I think well-being is, is an enabler and a facilitator. Mm. I think the danger is that if you set up metrics that specifically look at well-being in isolation, so whether it's steps, whether it's sleep, whether it's time on computers, whether it's 
Are we preserving meal times? That kind of thing. They're they're important, but when you get to the board level where you've got a, a CEO who's going to speak to the city, how much time people are spending on computers and what they're eating doesn't really cut it when it comes to presenting to the city. Yeah. So for me, the non-negotiables are that if we're going to talk about well-being, that the well-being metrics are actually commercial metrics. Mm. So they're metrics that have a seat at the board table. They're metrics that are talked about at a city level. And what I mean by that is it might well be that, you know, sleep or recuperation is, is the well-being metric that you measure, but it, you need to look at what does that ultimately influence. And one mm. of the things we know about well-being is that if you're under-resourced on well-being, whether that be sleep or nutrition or, you know, in, in environment, whatever that might be, the first things we lose are self-awareness and quality of decision-making. So we lose our self-awareness, which is our ability to recognize our own behavior, our own moods and our own impact, which yeah. destroys cultures. And the second thing is we lose our ability to make predictably and balanced decisions, which means then you're putting your business at risk as well. Mm. So when you start to look at that, the, my, my sort of non-negotiables are that when we talk about well-being, we're not just talking about the well-being metric. We're talking about the impact of that metric. So well-being has to be an impact measure. It's not an output measure. Mm. And for you, I'm just coming back to KPIs because it's often seen as a tick box exercise. Is it just HR KPIs or is this linked to strategic objectives and the bottom line right at the top of an organization? I think it has to be the latter. You know, yeah. I think too often HR are loaded with the responsibility yeah. of doing what we would call the, uh, you know, the people solutions or mm. the people interventions. When you look at most organizations, HR is one of the functions that is yeah. on its knees at the moment. You know, from an administrative perspective, you know, from a shift back to hybrid work, from a managing workforce and trying to recruit talent, et cetera, et cetera. HR doesn't have the capacity, A. But secondly, if you have this as an HR-led initiative, it will never actually hold its weight when the business bites. So when the, you know, the commercial side of the organization is struggling, the HR initiatives, often the ones that get stripped back first or, or budget reduced. Uh -huh. When you look at the marketing side of things, when the pipeline starts to dry up, that becomes the focus of the organization mm. or supply is the same thing. When we can't get product to customers, that becomes the problem. So, you know, these, these initiatives, these, these programs, this, this agenda has to live in the functions, not, not in HR. So it has to have equal weight across the functions, but also it needs to sit at the top table as well. Mm. But also because I'm hearing, and I agree with that, it's about personal agency, isn't it? So it's every individual's leader or not, there's responsibility to actually take respons to responsibility for his or her own well-being, but also the collective well-being of you know, the peers and the teams that they're working in. So uh, Absolutely. I mean, mm. I, I think for me that the big thing with that, and, and I would absolutely advocate this, is that we actually, in my last role at Reckitt, we positioned the well-being piece as a voluntary um, opt-in, not, not an opt-out. And I think yeah. one of the challenges with that is that most organizations may think that way initially, but then when they don't start to get traction, they start to mandate these things. As soon as you mandate them, you completely discredit them. You know, you, yeah. you pull it away. Well-being is an individual thing. You talked about agency. One of the things we've mm. suffered with over the last two years is we've lost agency of the world around us. We've lost yeah, our ability and absolutely. the freedom to make our own choices and decisions. So well-being has to be one of those. And I, I would counsel any, any corporate organization that if you're not getting traction and buy-in, it's not that the well-being program is not fit for purpose. It's that your culture is struggling with that transition. 
And if it's struggling, then, you know, as you know, we need to see that from leaders. And it's not about talking it. It's not about making statements. It's about the day-to-day, what I call the millisecond lessons. It's about the behaviors that people experience on a day-to-day basis. That's what will tell your organization how important well-being is or, or, yeah. or not, as the case may be. But, but that's quite a big ask, isn't it? It's about asking people to be vulnerable. And it's about the, what I call messy human problems, which means yeah. that it's not a quick fix. And it's going to take more time than we thought. And, you you know, you're going to have to push the timeline back if you're if you're defining success on the timeline or, or that type of KPI. And, and, but this is this is exactly the thing that, you mm. know, as you call them, messy human problems, they do take time. <laughs> Yeah. You know, we are very complex creatures as human beings and we don't all shift at the same time. And we don't all think the same way mm. or feel the same way. Mm. So, you know, when you talk about this, unless you can establish commercial KPIs that, that are linked, inextricably linked to well-being, then most organizations will not endure that journey. You mm. know, they will try. And, you know, I've spoken at, you know, probably, I don't know, 10, 12 conferences over the last six months. And the consistent theme is the incredibly low penetration of well-being yeah. interventions. And the problem is that as soon as those well-being interventions have low penetration, organizations pull away from them because they're not seeing the ROI. You know, as you and I have talked previously, mm. ROI does take longer to come through. But I would be looking at it as this is a sustainability metric. It's not, you know, an acute performance metric. It won't spike and, you know, max your business for the, within year. But what it will do is it will give your business a level of sustainability and stability for the years to come, which you can then build a solid foundation of, of performance on. Yeah, it's very like the topic of inclusion, which I, I, I put in the same basket in terms of the journey that the organization has to go on and the journey that individuals have to go on. And essentially, for me, it's sustainable competitive advantage that they're putting into their organization. So clearly it won't happen in three months or six months. But if I look at the war for talent and what's going on, particularly in the digital world, you know, the more the world gets connected digitally, the more human we have to be. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think the, the more the more the world is connected digitally and the more load that the digital functions take on, yeah. the more acutely visible and acutely important the quality of the human in that role is going yeah. is going to be. Mm. Um, the interesting thing for me is that when you look at even things like DNI, you know, obviously I, my 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 last role was in the well-being high performance space. But when you look at things like DNI, every organization on the planet, give or take a few, are training their people how to be inclusive, how to behave inclusively. Now, one thing that I know from working with anthropologists and neurologists, et cetera, and well-being specialists is that our, our affinity for diversity is what drives our inclusive behavior. Absolutely. So, you know, if, if someone has a, you know, a, a real beef or a problem with the person they work with, but you train them to be kind, they might be kind for a few days, mm. but then they'll revert to type because all the signals their body is sending them is to say, don't let this person in, keep this person on the outside. Yeah. I don't want them involved. So it's the bias, my, isn't it? My, my push is that you, you we shouldn't be training people to be inclusive. Mm. What we should be doing is trying to seek to understand what is it that's meaning that people are feeling more bias. Mm. Now, we know that when our well-being is compromised, our, our built-in, our biological negativity bias increases. Yeah, and when course. that increases, we tend to revert to type. We stick to what we know. We omit people who are not the same as us, who may pose a threat. So my argument would be, when you start to look at an organization, this is where C4 Human is, the whole human value chain, is that if you want to fix inclusion, we should start with well-being. Improve well-being, reduce negativity bias. If you reduce negativity Mm -hmm. bias, 
you create an affinity for diversity. You get people who want new opinions, mm. new ideas, mm. new help. And if they do that, if they have that affinity, they will naturally behave inclusively. It's how we're wired. Sometimes as organizations, we're trying to fix what we can see without mm. understanding the problem that's causing it. Yeah, and of course, if you go back to mental models and human reactions to change in the brain or otherwise, that, that is essentially a first step, but that also takes time. And I mean, yeah. and I think the pandemic has just exponentially charged this subject of mental health. And in a way, yeah. the opportunity is that the conversation has been opened because it's been forced. Yeah. But there are still people trying to move forward by ticking boxes. So what do you see as the biggest challenge there? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've got a real sort of energy about this subject. I think for me, the, the biggest problem for me, whether it be mental health is probably the best example of it, mm. is that if you look at the WHO mental health, you know, the, yeah. the spectrum, the curve, most organizations, most apps, most you know, initiatives, most statements, most, you know, publicity is targeted at the bottom five to 10%. The people who already have acute mental health problems, the people who are struggling, the people who are dealing with difficult times, the organizations trying to protect burnout. Yeah. Now, none of that happens overnight. No. And as a result, 70% of your population, the bulk of the middle of that curve, will not resonate with those acute symptoms because they don't have them at this point in time. Mm. So for me, the biggest challenge we have is that we need to stretch the agenda from being about acute mental health problems to mental energy. We called it mental energy at Reckitt. So yeah. we talked about optimizing mental energy. Mental energy gives you perspective, helps you make balanced decisions. It helps you be in conscious control of your behavior. It gives you the energy to deal with the bumps in the road. Mm. It's not a negative narrative. No. And I think as long as we continue to sort of push, and I agree that we need to talk about the people who need acute help, but the majority of organizations do have employee assistance programs and those acute pathways in place. Yeah. The challenge is that we're not picking up anybody before they get to that acute yeah. point. Because yeah. we're not talking to anyone before they get to that acute point. So how can we start to change the narrative and the focus so that it's more relevant for 70% of the population as opposed to being only relevant for mm. 5 to 10% of the population? Mental health is a chronic thing. It mm. doesn't happen overnight. It's a chronic slip. And it's as such, it's very difficult to, to observe, to spot, to catch before you get to that acute point. Mm. So my focus is really about how do we start to deal with the average rather than just focusing on the acute. Yeah, it's prevention rather than cure, isn't it? But, Absolutely, Which yeah. is more medium-term than short-term, if I look at focus. Well, but, I, I, go, I go a step further, because if you talk prevention rather than cure, what people think about is the moment just before you get to acute. How do we prevent acute? Okay. Whereas we think about how do we optimise mental health or optimise mental energy, mm. it then stretches it all. Because, you know, my frustration is the people that organizations get to come and speak to them about mental health are either people who've had a burnout or yeah. Olympians. Yes. Now, how many Olympians and people with burnout do you have in a population as a percentage? You're probably talking about, what, three, four percent? Mm. You know, the challenge is how do we normalize this, make it more about every day today, make it more about how does optimal or good or just to the right of average mental health what does that do for your culture and your organization? Mm. I mean, for you, is it something that should be in sort of onboarding processes and first line leadership courses and things like that? I, I think it absolutely should be. Mm. But, but again, I would, I would also caveat it around 
what's the narrative and how is it framed? You know, until it can get to a point, you know, someone said to me at, um, at a conference towards the start of the year, how do we know when we fixed well-being? And I said, well, we know when we fix well-being because well-being will no longer be a thing. Yes. So for me, when we talk about, you know, if you think about every single business meeting, I would much prefer that we're not doing, you know, check-ins, which mm. let's be honest, people have had two years of it now. And a lot of people are like, okay, we're doing a check-in again. It doesn't really resonate mean a lot anymore. But what we do is we weave the conversation into the day-to-day business conversation. Mm. So instead of it being a check-in and what are you struggling with and, you know, how can we help? It might be more around, okay, so we've got this piece of work we need to deliver as a team. How are people feeling about this? Mm. You know, where are people at? Have we got the energy for this right now? Mm. That for me is much more productive because you make, you weave it into the day-to-day tapestry rather than making it a bolt-on which will always sit as a second, you know, as a second player to the business, the hardcore business. Mm. Which in a way is simple to discuss here, but it's quite a, a shift, isn't it, in terms of skill sets? Yeah. Um, so, you know, and in the same way as inclusion and well-being, you can train people in empathy and active listening and, and I don't know, leader as coach and basic coaching skills. But to bring that into and operationalize it as part of an existing way of working, what are your thoughts around how you can do that? Because it's not a training think, subject for me. But. No, I think for me, there are two things. One is intent and the other thing is integration. So the first thing is about intent. You know, we know as human beings, and I, I keep banging on about this because we, <laughs> you know, I've done a lot of work with people who are very much specialist in this space, but we are human as human beings. We're, we're not silly. You know, we mm. sense stuff. Mm. I, I think in corporates, we get, we get obsessed with the fact that if you put something on a slide and you get someone senior enough to say it, everyone else will believe it. And it's the truth. The reality <laughs> is they don't. You know, people, yeah. it's, it's not what people say on a stage that matters. No. It's what people experience in a, a passing in the corridor. Mm. Or it's what people experience as a throwaway comment on a Zoom meeting. Yeah. That's the stuff that matters because that's the stuff that we are wired as human beings to pick up and to sense and to mm. feel and to experience. And so for me, you know, you can train people, you can put interventions in place, you can do decks, you can put policies in place, all this great stuff. But if we as human beings, your population, don't don't assume that it's positive intent and don't feel that it's positive intent, then it isn't going to stick. And I think that for me is the first big rub is that we put interventions training in place and a senior leader will stand up and say, this is what we do. And then 20 minutes later, in the next interaction or the next meeting, you experience something that's not that. Completely different. You know, people, people sense it. So yeah. it's got to be positive. It's got to be the right intent. It's got to be authentic. The second thing is about integration. I think the more that we take people out of the business to do training programs and interventions and coaching and all this sort of stuff, people just perceive it as a patch fix. You know, I think it would be much more impactful if we trained leaders or got leaders to just make small, small tweaks to the way that they run a meeting. And it might be, and I think as well around this, you know, you've you've got to be authentic. You know, if you go on a training program where you've been trained how to do something slightly different in a meeting, don't do it in hope that no one notices. Because again, (laughs) people people can smell it a mile off. You know, I prefer that a leader stands in a meeting and says, look, or she says, I'm going to try and run this session in a slightly different way. I've learned something over the past week that has fundamentally changed the way that I think we might be able to operate. I would like to try it and I'd like you to give me feedback and then then run the meeting a different way. Mm. That for me is much more powerful than what happens at the moment where people go on a conference, they listen to lots of stuff, they listen to lots of statements and big ideas and agendas and all the rest of it. And then they come back 
and they're a completely different person to the one that their team knew before they went. And all the team does is sit there and go, oh, hang on a second, this doesn't feel <laughs> this doesn't feel right. And yeah. it doesn't matter what comes out of that person's mouth, it still doesn't feel right. So for me, intent and integration are the two non-negotiables. They have to be there. And mm-hmm. it takes an organization to be very honest with itself to do that. This is yeah. not a quick fix. You know, if we want to do it, we want it to be sustainable mm-hmm. and we want it to have an impact, then intent and integration are absolutely critical. And it's the same, isn't it? Because what I call the intention to action gap. So you have an intention and it's translated completely differently for whatever for whatever reason. Yeah. But but I'm a big believer in changing cultures one habit at a time or one practice at a time. And I'm really interested now to come back to your sportsmanship and what you learn from being a professional sportsman and, and how that's influenced how you think about these subjects and essentially how that's influenced your see for human approach. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the, the biggest thing I learned through sport, and it was an interesting one, because I, I mean, I played ice hockey from the age of four, right <sighs> through until I was kind of 24. So, you know, I went through my sporting career when I was going through a lot of developmental changes, mm. psychologically, mm. hormonally, everything else myself. And I remember a lot of emotions going through that time. So, of course, there was the technical and the skills development and the physical development. But the big things that really sort of sit with me are things like experiencing intimidation walking into new dressing rooms or new team rooms and not knowing who people are and trying to figure out the network and who I can trust and what matters. And, and it, so it wasn't so much the, the, the physical side of sport. It's a very physical sport. Mm. It was the emotional side, the psychology of experiencing these changing situations. And what I noticed through that was that there are certain things that will build your ability to handle those situations. And there are certain things that will undermine it. And for me, this is where the well-being space has to come in. So the C4 human, the creating the capacity for human, is about how do we link well-being to mood, to behavior, to culture, to performance. Mm. And it's it's so it's a, it's a one value chain and everything's inextricably linked and it's underpinned by science. So I know that if I haven't, let's say in an ice hockey example, I haven't trained as hard so I don't feel as strong. My mood will be slightly negative. I'll probably be less optimistic. And I'll feel, I suppose, threatened by those around me. What that will do in terms of my behavior is I'll be closed, I'll be quiet, I'll be shy, and I'll probably not integrate into the culture. I'll feel like an outsider. Mm. And as such, I won't perform very well. People won't involve me. They won't pass me the buck. And that's how things will play out. It's no different in the corporate environment. If someone's on a resource from a well-being perspective, we know that our negativity bias spikes. We know that our mood will tend to make us pull back and recluse and close down. What that means is we'll be less inclusive. We'll be probably more abrasive towards other people. We won't listen. And we'll have spikes where our opinions will come out. Now, what that means in terms of behavior is we might be perceived as as a non-team player. We might be perceived as an outsider or as a maverick. And as a result, that culture will not yield innovation or open collaboration Mm. or Mm. indeed sustainable performance. Mm. So for me, when you look at this, it's about saying, how does our, our, undermine, our underlying biology, psychology, and mood, how does that inform the things that we see and feel in the workplace? So behavior, interactions, inclusion, diversity, mental health, innovation, collaboration. How does it inform that? So rather than training people to behave in a way that is contradictory to the way that they feel, Let's optimize the way that they feel in terms of consistency and mood, mm. which then means that they have a natural 
sort of a natural affinity to behave in a way that will move the culture and the business in the way that we want it to go. Mm. So it's about small tweaks at each point on that algorithm rather than one big lever, which is train people how to behave. Yeah, I think we need to work in small. So it's about Mm. breaking down the silos. It's about increasing the understanding and the education across the business about what influences what. Mm. And then it's about having a commitment from the business in terms of intent, but also in terms of integration to actually manage that process. People Mm. don't react to big change. No. So it's much better that we make small changes in Mm. more areas and make it manageable Mm. and something that has sustainability. And I'm making an assumption here, Andy, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, that it worked as a sportsman because the whole team understood what you've just explained. And I'm also making another assumption from my experience in corporate and from working with corporates that not everybody understands that. Is that the only thing that's blocking, that's stopping it working in the corporate environment? I know you work with lots of corporates and you've seen lots of different areas. What's your take on that? Because you've come from an environment where everybody gets it. Yeah environment where not everyone gets it and and i think it's 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 really interesting because the the two things that influence it are comfort so Mm -hmm. some people will feel very uncomfortable with with this sort of change this sort of real different perspective but then the other thing is that people will feel threatened by it as well yeah so when you look at especially post-covid people are very high in terms of their threat response and their vigilance and much lower in terms of their comfort because the environments we're in are changing the whole time Mm -hmm. So as you say, in the sporting environment, I mean, you know, if English football is probably the Premier League. I'm not a football fan, but it's probably a great, you know, it's probably the best sort of analogy with our current corporate business world in is that if we don't see results quickly, then we, we get rid of it and we, change, we try something else. You know, when you look at the teams that have real sustainable performance, whether it's the All Blacks or, you know, Eddie mm. Jones has been given a long time with the England team, that kind of thing, you start to see those changes. So there's a piece which is around patience. And there's a piece which is around comfort as well. Yeah. So I think for us, it's about how do you, or I say us in terms of the change makers in this space, mm. it's about saying, how do you build comfort by developing KPIs that allow senior business leaders to see small but consistent progression in this space? Mm. What they don't want to see is things going back or yeah. spending an awful lot of money and seeing no progress. Mm. So how do you create comfort? And then the the second thing is, how do you create patience? And ironically, the two go hand in hand. If you can tell if me you, that, I will buy you it cre- <laughs> if you cre- but I think I'm a firm believer, if you create comfort mm. and consistent progress, mm. then you build patience. Where people have impatience is where they spend money or they put themselves out yeah. there and they see nothing happening. Yeah. The problem yeah. with well-being at the moment is the metrics that people are using to measure well-being are of very little commercial interest to an organization. Yeah. Most people who are dealing, for example, in mental health will say, you know, people who have better mental health are more innovative and more collaborative, but no one's measuring it. Yeah. And no one's actually measuring it within a corporate. It's great reading a white paper, but you can read a white paper that bears very little resemblance to my corporate environment of, mm. of, of whoever mm. senior business leads. The critical thing is, how do you establish the right KPIs? But then how do you establish those KPIs? within the organization that is looking to influence it. Yeah. Because that's what builds the comfort and that's what builds the patience to actually mm. progress and continue progressive investment. I think mm. where people have been burnt is that people have gone out there, thought, we need to fix this. We'll procure an app or a platform. We'll pay hundreds of thousands of pounds for it. We're getting 1% penetration. And we're looking at it and saying, it's not influencing my business. You can't tell me whether it's influencing my people. Penetration is massively low. Mm. It's a massive cost. 
what else would you do in any other area of a corporate environment where you had that little penetration and that outlay of cost, you get rid of it. And that's exactly what's happening to well-being. So I think there's a fundamental need to step back, look at what we're trying to influence. If you say to most organizations, if we fix well-being, what does your organization look like? Most have not visualized what no. that is. No. And as a result, you don't have metrics that matter. Yeah. And as a result, you can't show progress, you know, progress mm. towards it. So I think there's a real need to step back and say, right, before we throw more money and more complexity and more confusion at people who can't take it on board anyway, let's get a really clear vision of what success looks like. Yeah. But not just what the end goal looks like. What does that roadmap look like? Mm. And what do the KPIs look like that allow us to demonstrate progress commercially on that roadmap? Mm. Then I think we start to move to somewhere. And that's where C4 Human is, is really kind of anchored. Mm. And I think it's really interesting, the patient's question, because whether you're an impatient person or not, so clearly I am, which is why I was so interested in the definition of patience. But I think in organisations, impatience comes from trying to figure stuff out all the time before you've really understood it. And it's massively geared towards cognitive intelligence. Yeah. And I think part of this is really about understanding and explicitly discussing the emotional uh, layer. I'd say I'd say it's before that. You know, we we know, I mean, if you look at, is a great theory around triune brains, the three areas of human brain. And, you know, I heard a great example the other day about, you know, if you have an antelope who's been chased by a lion, the antelope will, you know, run as fast as it can until the lion's gone, until the threat's gone. If you put a human in the same situation with a boss that's chasing them or an email trail, what would happen is that whereas the antelope, as soon as the chase is over, it stops and it starts eating grass, what a human being will do because of our neocortex, our executive brain, is the chase will be over. And then we'll start, you know, we'll start, you know, analyzing it and saying, well, why did that happen to me? And what, what do people think of it? And what if it happens again? And how do I prevent it? And do I trust that person? And, and this all becomes this big problem. And our emotions drive that. Mm -hmm. So this is where I come to. If you look at well-being, mood, emotion, behavior, that's the focus. That's the link. That's where we need to be looking at. Cognition mm -hmm. happens at the end of all that if we have cognitive space for it. I think one of my, you know, sort of frustrations is that a lot of organizations talk about mindfulness. Mindfulness is great if you have the capacity for yeah, it. Absolutely. Yes, you can consciously create a bit of that, but our body and our brain's primary function is keeping us alive and keeping us safe, which is why our moods and emotions play such a huge role and take up so much of that capacity. So, mm. you know, I think for me, you know, the mood and emotion piece, it's woolly, let's be honest, for a lot yeah. of organizations. Yeah. But my holy grail would be that. If you see, let's say, innovation suffering in an organization, we need to be able to track that back and say, well, what's, what's driving that suppression of innovation? And it's going to be that people aren't being listened to, ideas mm. aren't being built upon, people mm. aren't collaborating. Okay, well, why is that happening? Well, that's not happening because people feel threatened. People aren't taking the time to understand. They've got too much workload, which means they're not able to absorb and explore new ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why is that happening? Well, it's because... People are feeling negative in terms of their mood. They're feeling threatened and they're, they're looking to protect themselves to improve their psychological safety. Why does mm. that happen? Well, it's because their well-being is under-resourced. Under you know, so when you look at these things, it's very easy as a corporate to fix what you see. Yeah. The problem is we're complex beings. What you yeah. see is not the problem. What you see is the symptom. Yeah. Um, you know, no different to if someone's got, you know, I don't know, is it taking paracetamol the whole time because they've got headaches? You can keep doing the paracetamol, but as soon as you stop the paracetamol, the headaches are going to come back. Absolutely. So how do we start to just track back <clears> and say, right, where is this coming from? Because if we invest at the source, then 
your your return on that investment is mm. going to be more sustainable, it's going to be more progressive, and it's going to be mm. greater as well. We're back to patterns, aren't we? So human behavioral patterns or process Absolutely, patterns yeah. or system patterns of and, and so I'm a cellist in an orchestra and I'm a big believer. I used of, to play the cello. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. Only till I was about 12 because the ice hockey guys didn't think Look it was over. very cool for me. But right, it's a beautiful okay. instrument. Beautiful instrument. So I don't know any ice hockey players, luckily. So I've carried on. <laughs> it is a <laughs> Good be- on you. A beautiful instrument, you're right. But I think what strikes me most about playing in an orchestra is how intently you need to listen to what's being played, but even more so to what isn't being played. And I always make that that analogy because I think if you don't go there, you're never going to get any type of systemic change, which brings me back to comfort. Because I think, you know, I've worked in one or two massively high performing teams and they were the most uncomfortable places to start with because it's so challenging and it isn't about your comfort zone. It's about constantly being taken out of, yeah. of your comfort zone. And I think people think that once you're in a high-performing team, everyone really likes each other, no one ever challenges each other, you just perform well together. And I think, you know, part of the comfort thing is explicitly saying to people, this is about getting more comfortable with being uncomfortable because I don't think you'll ever be 100% comfortable. And yeah. look, luckily not, because otherwise you wouldn't be innovating or, or changing perspective or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, when, when you look at it from a biological perspective, you know, the whole reason we experience emotions is to get us to move. That's why it's called emotion. We, you know, we experience something that gets us to change something mm. about our environment. Um, now, the big thing about comfort for me is, you know, resilience is a word that gets used a lot in corporate organizations. But for me, resilience speaks too much or is, is interpreted too often as the ability to sustain more and more or increasing load. Mm. What I would look at in terms of the optimal piece in an organization is about saying, how do we build elasticity? So how can people flex and flex? Like that. And that's what we should be. If you think about an elastic band, you know, if you even the visual of holding it tense, you know that that's going to pop at some point. It's going to hurt. Yeah. Um, but if you do that or, you know, whatever it might be, then it, it's a positive state. So, you know, for me, when we talk about discomfort or tension or whatever, it should be about elasticity. If you've got an organization or a high performing team, most of those high performing teams stretch and flex back, stretch and flex back. Yeah. They're not in a state of high strain the whole no, time. No, um, you know, so when you look at it, stretch zone is really important. That's the mm. stretching of the band. Mm. Strain is when it's just about to break. And the challenge is that when we're stretched, our ability to recognize our load is not as good as it would be no. if we were better resourced. So it's very easy for people to go from stretch to strain. Strain yeah. is when things start to break down. Stretch is when things are, you know, you're in a flow state, things are yeah. optimized and you're yeah. performing very well. So in any high performing team, there need to be those triggers or the cues that people can consciously pull on to say, right, are we stretched or are we straight mm. right now? Mm. Are we elastic? When did we last flex back? I did some great work with um, an adventurer called Nick Hollis, who's, um, you know, done both poles and rode the oceans and all the rest of it and small towns we well yeah but we were talking about we were talking about the concept of endurance business yeah and he said well when do you get strong mm. and i know obviously from my studies you get strong at super compensation when you you know you recover and you build over you overlay mm. it's the same with our memory our learning our emotions when we relax and when we process we overlay and we build on mm. Mm. now as a team elasticity is critical that's this that's the super compensation piece mm. so when we look at you know whether it's well-being mental health mental health will always be good if you've got the elasticity the problem is with mental health is if you stretch and you strain into a state that you can't come back from 
that's when people start to struggle with their mental health. Yeah, and that's what's you know, so when we look at this as an organization, your ideal state is how elastic are we as an organization? How quickly and how consistently can we flex and flex back? That for me is really what we should be aiming for. I can just imagine asking that question. Do, do you get sort of blank faces or do, can people answer that question already if you ask them? I don't think, I think people, what, te- what people tend to do is they justify why they're in strain. Right. Okay. So you'll have organizations yeah. Yeah. that say, well, we're going through a big transformation at the moment, so we just need to deliver this and then. And then, and then. You know, and, and this is, you know, so when you think of that, it's your executive brain, which does your language, narrating what your emotional brain <laughs> is feeling. But what it does is it justifies it. Mm. So you'll have senior leaders who will say, well, we're just doing this and then. And then we'll rest. What their yeah. brain is saying is, is, is they're saying, well, if we tell people that we're pushing way beyond our capacity, they're not going to buy into it. They're not going to come with us. So what we do is we dumb it down by saying we're just doing this for this period of time. And then we yeah. all know that we're yeah. in strain mode and something's going to start to break. Yeah. So for me, when we start to work with senior leaders, it's about saying, how can we get them to be consciously aware of the narrative they're putting out there and the incongruence yeah. with the, the, the experience that they're creating? Mm-hmm. So if you have a senior business leader who says, you know, I was listening to one speak and they said, you know, I'd like to thank everyone who's put their energy and time into making this event happen they've been working weekends and you know eat late nights and and i was sitting there thinking no 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 this is that last bit didn't need to be glorifying it shouldn't have been said you know those are the small things that make our our threat response spike where we think okay so if i don't do that i'm going to be an outlier i'm not going to be held up as a high performer so it's it's how do we you know enable these business leaders to be acutely aware of the narrative they're putting out there, and it's as I say, it's not the narrative when they're stood up delivering the speech. No, it's the narrative in the conversations in the mm. corridors or on the Zoom mm. meetings or on the mm. WhatsApp chats. It's mm. the millisecond lessons that create culture, not the statements and the billboards. No, and it's the power of the stories, isn't it? It's the power of the stories we tell ourselves, and also yeah. to come back to the system, the stories that are held in the the memory of systems, which are yeah. sort of normalized or not or perpetuated by that type of thing i think it's really interesting and time is running but i do have one more question what what does that mean for you then post-covid when you know we're on 24 7 we have a capacity to be straining more than we did before because we don't have the commute or only going to the office two days a week or what's your recommendations around that as leaders I think for me, the reality is probably doing myself out of a job here, but the, the reality is <laughs> I did that regularly. <laughs> I would say 80% of the people in the corporate world at the moment, they know how much they should be sleeping. Mm. They know what's good for sleep. They know mm. what they should be eating. They know mm. they should be exercising. They know looking at blue screens late at night is not good for you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. None of that is new. No. So most of the well-being apps that are telling us what we should do are not really servicing anything because people know that. The problem is that people aren't able to make it happen. Change is very difficult. And part of that is that a lot of people are trying to change things that are incongruent with the way they feel and also are incongruent with the way their organizations are trying to mm-hmm. operate. So for me, well-being is not about how do we put well-being interventions in place. It's how do we get to a point where well-being challenges the operating model of an organization. So if I was to look at an organization and work with a board or an executive team, This isn't about saying you've got to give people more time off. It's not about saying, you know, we've got to preserve lunch Mm. breaks or whatever. It's about creating an experience where those individuals experience for themselves the shift in terms of clarity of thought, in terms of improvement of relationships, in terms of elasticity and their ability to flex and flex back. 
And this does happen. You know, there are senior leaders at Reckitt, not everyone, but some who will not take decisions on people or business after 2 p.m. Because they have communicated to their teams, I do not have the cognitive capacity to make proper decisions at that point. That's really powerful because that says to the team, my leader is actually switching off. We have people who, when they recruit people into their team, they give them a, a, a personal coach who's linked to the team for the first three months to help them integrate and help them to challenge and influence the operating model. So these things do happen. But for me, you don't start with well-being at an individual level. The well-being has to start on an organizational level. And Mm. the reality is, unless you can create the shift and the positive engagement at a senior level, I don't think there's, you know, it's it's a wasted resource. Yes, make things available, but you cannot tell people that the organization is investing in well-being when they experience that it's not. It does more harm than good. And you burn a hell of a lot of money and a hell of a lot of time and a hell of a lot of expectation. And it just, it undermines the message that we're trying Mm. to get out there. Mm. You know, so for me, I would much prefer that people focused on how do we get the tone at the top to change? How do we start to shift that? But how do we appreciate that those senior leaders are probably in a place of discomfort and underperformance and under resilience and under elasticity themselves? I think too often we work with the assumption that the people at the top are nailing it. Yeah. And I think more than ever, they are not. Mm. We have people at the top of organizations who are used to pulling big levers, which result in bags of gold, shares, and bonuses. That is not happening right now. And those people are in a very uncomfortable position. And until we can meet them where they are and mm. help them to shift, then we're not going to move the needle. Mm. So I think we need to appreciate it's not that the people at the top of organizations are bad. It's, it's often that they're struggling just as much as the rest of us. And we need to take them on that journey first. Mm. And just for our listeners who are sitting there thinking, okay, light bulb moment, so therefore what can I do? What would your final call to action be, Andy, for those people who are actually thinking, right, I need to do something, but I'm not quite sure what? So, I mean, it depends whether it's an individual or an organisational question. At an organisational level, I would say, have you got a vision of what picture of success looks like for your organisation when wellbeing is in place? So what does that look like? What does the, the operating model look like in terms of business cadence? If not, then I would challenge you're not ready to do it. And that needs to be your first plan of action. At an individual level, what I would say is none of this happens you doing it yourself. The first thing we can do is to tell people around us and recruit our support team to help us make that shift. Don't pull one lever. You know, look at the different areas. Mm. So look at, you know, nutrition, sleep, rest, recovery, work, relationships, whatever matters to you. And look at what are the small tweaks I can make in each one and how can I combine those? A great example for me was I was struggling with my morning routine. I was feeling resentful of the fact, you know, I had to sort of deal with the kids and get ready for work. And, you know, I didn't get sleep and all the rest of it. Mm. So I combined it. You know, I got up in the morning, I go and I do yoga with my four-year-old. So we do yoga together. He copy me. He think it was <laughs> funny. I get some stretch in and then we'd have breakfast and we talk. And that meant that I'd had physical exercise, I'd stretched things out and had an inter, you know, an intimate personal conversation yeah. before the day started. I also gave my wife a bit of time off and she had a bit of downtime. You know, so it was winning in lots of areas mm. before the day even started. Mm. So it's little things like that, small tweaks in a few areas and how do you combine it to make it sustainable? But recruit your team and mm. bring your team around you and help them to help you. Okay, intentionally craft your team. That's what I'm taking for that, whether it's indeed, your inner indeed. team or your external team. Yeah. Okay, Andy, thank you so much for coming and sharing your experience and your insights and your thoughts. Where can people find out more about you and what you do? 
I guess LinkedIn is the uh, the best place for now. I have just signed up with a new organization, which I'm, well, not a new organization, but a new contract for me, which I'm incredibly Excellent. excited about and will cool. be announcing um, in September. But for now, catch me on LinkedIn to just yeah look up Andy Holmes, uh, ping me a message. I'm doing the C4 Human piece for now, and that will go forward with me into the new organization. So really excited about building it out. But you know, I've got three months of... Uh, of freedom and free time and free thought. So if people want to get in touch, please do so. Rejuvenation time, rest time. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> okay. And on that note, I will leave our listeners with that then. So watch out for Superhuman. Indeed. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Andy. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Let's Talk for Transformation and the insights it brought you. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. <laughs>